Welcome to our Learning at GIST podcast series. My name is Joanna Summers. I'm the Middle School High School Curriculum Coordinator. Today I'm excited. We're joined by our esteemed high school deputy principal, Ryan Campbell. Ryan, welcome. Uh, hello. Why are you sniggering? <laughs> you said the word esteemed. Uh, I thought you'd like that. I thought it was apt yeah. because you are an iconic figure around the school, particularly in the high school. You're a very noticeable figure. You wear beautiful batik every day. Uh, you, you are present. You're seen by a lot of people, our students, our faculty and so on. So for those of you who may not be as familiar with you in our community, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well... So I guess, um, I don't really know where to go with that after that wonderful introduction, thank you very much. <laughs> I, I suppose I should start by saying um, my, you know, my background is obviously, probably tell with an accent, from Scotland. I was at school in Glasgow, uh, an old independent school called Hutchison's, and then from there a university in, in Edinburgh. Um, very shortly after that, actually, I ended up in Indonesia, so I've pretty much spent most of my adult life in Indonesia. So I think from about 24 or 25. Um, I mean, I've had, I did do three years in China and two years in the Philippines, but by and large, I've spent most of my, my adult life here. Um, so, and that's probably why the, where the Patek shirts come from. And the fluent Bahasa, uh, well, you speak beautiful Bahasa. <laughs> the flu- fluent, if perhaps ungrammatical, <laughs> and uh, obviously sometimes quite rude, uh, inadvertently, <laughs> I hasten to add. Um, in terms of, of, of me, really, you know, I'm I, I pretty much am a bit of a one-dimensional character. I'm quite interested in my work, and that's something I think a lot about. Um, I do have a lot of interests. Um, I've tried to, I've tried to maintain uh, be the perennial academic. So I've never really left university. Um, you know, I'm probably the complete opposite of, of an autodidact, whatever that is, in terms of someone who's self-taught. Well, I, I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm someone who's never really stopped. Um, studying at university. Um, I, I could give some examples of some of the more recent stuff I've done, if that's of interest. Uh, certainly a couple of recent publications where things like, again, probably quite boring, uh, I did something on blooms. I do a lot of, like, I'm, I'm the practitioner and there's an academic and we do stuff together. So a guy I've done quite a lot of stuff with is uh, Dr. Christian Bockhove from the University of Southampton who is, you know, he's a wonderful inspirational figure, uh, both as a high-level academic, um, certainly in terms of, of world-class perceptions of his ability, which is, you know, he, he's, he's fantastic. But what, what that's one thing, but what's really good about what he does is he does a lot of stuff with practitioners, and that's very much what I'm into as well. Well, and I think the term for, for what you're you're describing yourself here I think the term is pracademic (laughs) you know that you practice you're practicing and you're researching at the same time which is what's so valuable to us here in the high school I hadn't heard that before I'll need to write that down that's a nice one (laughs) pracademic yeah I I think that's definitely part of it and I think also is keeping that healthy skepticism and I think that's come from never having really left university is although I'm fascinated by the the academic work I don't take it too seriously I, I keep a a a critical in the academic sense eye on it and I'm always really trying to relate it back to practice and and the all important uh, all, the all importance of context some things just simply do not work or do not transfer into practice day to day so I try and keep a I try and keep a philosophical uh, mindset as well in terms of the long view uh, you know what 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 have the ideas been that have survived the test of time 
because that's an, that's an indicator that, that, that there's something real happening there other than just a laboratory produced example um, and that, that's definitely part of what I've done. Some recent uh, publications involve, you know, I did a thing on, on Bloom's, Bloom's taxonomy, which is one of the, again, back to that point I just made about what's to the test of time. Well, Bloom's has been come under a lot of criticism. So, of course, immediately I started thinking, well, is there anything there that, that, that's quite quite useful? Uh, and Bloom's is just, you know, it's from, a, the, the original was from 56, I think, Benjamin Bloom. And, and for the, yeah, for those who, who may not be familiar with the Bloom's taxonomy, we're talking about the, the scaled levels of, of thinking and, and critical thinking. Yeah, it's, it's, that, it's that level of, of, of cognitive complexity, of, of the amount of, 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 uh, of complexity of thought there. I think there's been a lot of misconceptions about Blooms, and what we tried to do w w was take Blooms and show it as a framework for, and then embed the latest cognitive science into that and show how it's actually still quite functional. Because there is this cognitive revolution that um, you know, has swept and is sweeping through the profession. It started... I it kind of started, I think, in, um, it has a few start points, but um, one of the start points is definitely the work of, as I know, a guy that you're a big fan of, uh, John Hattie. And now, of course, he, as with all academics' work, he's come under a lot of criticism for his use of effect sizes. And But what, what no one is arguing with is the impact he's had, which is where it comes in in terms of the practitioner. So regardless of of what you think about the individual studies and meta-analysis itself as a, a research tool and how he calculates statistically his effect sizes. What is undeniable is the enormous impact he's had, which leads us beautifully on, on to GIS actually, because one thing I should stress is, is that a lot of this stuff we're doing on the learning sciences, that definitely hasn't come from, from me. That was very much in GIS when I came. One of the reasons I tried to make the position actually is that emphasis on evidence-based practice, which is in our um, teacher, you know, how we, our teacher standards and our teacher, it's under evidence-based practice, actually. Um, and a lot of that goes back to Hattie's work. Um, Hattie very much had that impact on GIS. And although the, the conversation has, in many ways, moved on from that initial work, and it's moved on in lots of different ways, um, like, for example, the, the, the one I gave there of Blooms or some other work we've done, in terms of we, uh, we had a peer-reviewed article published on group work and, and because like something else that's come up under a lot of criticism. And most recently, uh, we did a textbook chapter on adaptive teaching for beginner teachers. The, these are things that just simply would not have happened 10 years ago, where the, the, there would not have been that same, same emphasis on, on what the cognitive sciences were bringing to practice they were kind of off in a bubble on their own and, and you know, they were producing all this wonderful work and there was people like, you know, Bjork and Bjork, um, you know, there was, there was uh, Daniel uh, Wilmingham, there was all these kind of people, but it wasn't really impacting practice, but now it is. So it's having a huge impact on practice. So for our audience, um, how can you describe cognitive science in, in one sentence? Is there a way that you can really encapsulate the main ideas of, when we talk about cognitive science and we talk about some of the, the academics out there, yeah. like John Hattie and others and so on, what are we actually talking about here in relation to our students? Okay, so I, I, I it depends if you're prepared to uh, relax your definition of a sentence. Uh, okay, so <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll Quite simply, we're talking about the architecture of our brains, mm -hmm. right? 
So we're, you can, let's, let's just take the idea of architecture now and we, we can have, you can build buildings. There's many, you know, a million different cultural variations. There's a million different shapes and sizes, but there's certain fundamental laws. And, and that they, once we know those parameters, we can move within them and we can combine them and we can do different things. So I think that's a useful way of looking, if I'm only allowed one sentence, I think that's a useful way of thinking about it in terms of, of what are the structures of, of how we operate and, and then we can start to build within that. I could, if I could give you one example in terms of how it... Um, so that, that's my attempt at making a, a metaphor... Uh, and and I no Ryan <laughs> quite nicely brought a prop in to show people today for getting it was a podcast. <laughs> podcast yeah, apologies. But, but the title of that book is Understanding How We Learn. Yeah. So essentially, is that what cognitive science is trying to help us do? Understand how we learn. Uh, yeah, I think that's the point I was going to get out there with the architecture. You know, what, it's not telling you what to learn. It's not mm-hmm. telling that's a curriculum decision. It's not telling you how individuals learn. Uh, because that's going to be, you know, there's going to be differences there. Um, it, it's, it's again that idea of what are the parameters in terms of, of what we move, uh, of how we would do things. I, if I, just a specific example is another um, raft or another part of the cognitive revolution that's, that, that's having a big impact, or a huge impact in Brands, I should say, um, being very much driven out of Australia is the idea of cognitive load theory, which is, you know, I'm. I'm you'll know better than, than anyone. It's, it's had a lot of criticism from academics, but practitioners have seized it with both hands because, and this is, I guess, what, what was my new word? Pracademic, right? Pracademic, uh, yeah. My new word. It's this idea where um, the, the theory, you know, interesting as it is, and I do find it very, very interesting, it's only so good for the practitioner in as far as it, generates useful heuristics for professional decision making that's all that that's the kind of be all and end all for the practitioner the practitioner doesn't care about effect sizes or you know how valid it is or or how far it's been replicated that's just something you know or what the limits or what the boundary conditions are that they're not interested in that they want to know is well as a general rule they're not interested in it. they want to know what are the kind of heuristics that are going to inform my practice so then let, let's talk about that. So for our parents then, you know, we're, in the high school, you've certainly been um, promoting this idea of cognitive science and we've had um, experts in the field come out and, and so on. What does it look like in the classroom then? What benefits, how do our teachers use these theories of cognitive science to better inform our practice mm-hmm. and to promote student learning? Okay, so I'll try and, let, let, me, let me try and, and take a couple of bits and show them how that, that, that would put together. So what would be one building block of schools that's never, re- well, hasn't really changed for a long time would be the kind of units, you know, learning mm-hmm. units. And then another idea would be a, a kind of assessment. And then another idea would, would be the instruction phase. So well, how does how does cognitive science kind of work there? Well, let me give you one example. Um, one of the, probably you can spot the history background coming through here. One of my oldest, uh, one of the oldest I- effects in cognitive science is this idea, you know, is Ebbinghaus and, and the, the idea of, of the forgetting curve, right? And this is, you know, we gradually forget, we, things gra- we gradually mm. recede in our memory. And that was, uh, you know, very early research. And we, we talk about sample size. Well, that was N equals one. You know, Ebbinghaus did it mm-hmm. himself. You know, mm-hmm. he, he tested himself. Uh, then you get from there, we start to get 
the idea of spaced practice, of actually how do we interrupt that forgetting curve? How do we, we, we make sure that we're, the material we're learning is transitioning from that, well, well, I, because we talked about cognitive load earlier, I may as well go back to that a little bit. How do we transition from the kind of working memory, that very limited short-term memory, into that much deeper store of that long-term memory? And what's the crucial role of forgetting in that? Because a lot of people forget about forgetting. You know, that we don't want to be always on. We want effortful retrieval. And now you can see what I was doing here. Uh, I've, I've introduced two of the concepts that, we've, that have a, had a big impact on practice. Spacing practice. Not just the, the traditional, you did the unit, oh, they've now learned it. Well, actually, we know they haven't. Mm -hmm. Because, or if they have learned it, perhaps they, they haven't, they're not able to retrieve it and use it and transfer it easily. And that's where the space practice and the, how things have sh are beginning to shift, where people are planning in, you know, at what point should we revisit that earlier material? How does it all connect together? What does that mean for assessment? Actually, that means quite a lot for assessment and how assessments are designed. Because for too long, the, the idea of the unit test encouraged that kind of block practice. I do a block of work, mm -hmm. right, and I know it really well, and then I do a test on that block, and now I've somehow mastered it, and then I don't see it again until you know the, the accumulating assessment, which could be then the year, or or in, in some courses, case like for example IB courses, two years, and that's not a way to deep learning. And, and, and although I think we always knew that intuitively, now that we're actually getting that, no, you really do need to look at your practices in this area, and you do, you do need to redesign around that. Now, the other one I just gave there was retrieval. Um, there's another example where this idea that, that there should be some uh, desirable difficulties, not my own term, that's stolen from Bjork, but this idea of, of effortful retrieval and where if learning is too easy, if, if, if it's not being designed well by the teacher, then you're not going to get those deeper, that deeper memory traces and that deeper learning. And that's why there's this idea that, that retrieval should be effortful. Um, Retrieval practice, well, you mentioned already with a consultant, and so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. Well, well, how, about, how about we finish by talking about a different type of learning? Go on. Online learning. Oh, yeah. So oh, we're, over time already? we, we <laughs> are in um, un unprecedented times where we're teaching and learning in a way we didn't anticipate we would be only mm. a year ago. Yeah. And so tell me then, for our parents, you know, there's a lot of, you and I are both parents, we understand... Um, some of the challenges of, of online mm. learning, some of the impacts it's having on our children and so on. But I, I want you to try and give some insight. What, what dispositional skills do you think our students are gaining? How do you think online learning is actually shaping our students in a positive way? Um, well, I mean, I guess, so I'll go dispositionally and I'll, I'll jump back to, you know, uh, some learning science there. So let's start with dispositionally then. Well, you don't become more resilient in easy times. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's one of our resilience is one disposition we talk about. It's just simply a fact. Nobody becomes, um, you know, more resilient when, when times are good and when times are easy. Mm -hmm. This is an example where they are becoming more resilient. Now, how do you become more resilient? Um, we talk a lot about in the high school about becoming anti-fragile, you know, a concept we've taken from uh, Nazim Taleb. Where anti, 
if you're, what does anti-fragile mean? It's simply the idea of a system that gains from disorder. In our case, we've applied it to, to children. You know, we want to produce adults who gain from disorder, who are who have that competitive advantage over peers from other schools and from other walks of life, where when the situation perhaps doesn't go so well for them, they're able to, and they combine, how do they develop resilience? First of all, the, the idea they're going to come back from it, and second, reflection. Because it's all very well being, you know, tough like a, a bar of iron or, or stone, but you're, if you're not growing there, you're not anti-fragile. So I would say that's the first, the first part is the ability is to actually reflect and, and see this as a learning experience. But I do, just to link back to learning science, um, the, the problem with online learning is, uh, or part of the problem with online learning, is that it does encourage some things that we know aren't great for, for learning, like multitasking being an obvious one, because you can just open up another browser. So that, that having these awareness of, of how bad things like multitasking uh, is for our learning, um, and it's always bad, but it's particularly easy to do in an online environment. So that's something to be aware of as well. And I think that's something that students are really identifying now too. You know, when we've surveyed our students in a couple of times in the last few months, that's something that they're identifying too, that I'm, I'm becoming better at managing my time. I'm becoming better at avoiding distractions and so on. So, yeah, it's important, isn't it, for students to perhaps take this as an opportunity to, to be aware of those things. Mr Campbell? I'd really like to thank you for coming in today. I anticipate we're probably going to sit here for another half an hour having these conversations after we turn the recording off. Uh, but thank you. No worries. And, uh, and we'll continue to learn from you as we always do. Thank you.